0: this audio presentation of The Man from U.N.C.L.E., The Doomsday Affair, by Harry Whittington. Volume 7. 6. The changing of the shift continued. For a long time, Sola remained where he was, watching the faces of those men who had sold out to Thrush. The pattern was clear enough now, as well as the time. Early morning, doomsday. He stirred, seeing how easily the mission would be accomplished. The plane would land on that strip out there, the bomb brought carefully up by lift, and flown to its target from well within the protective radar and early warning ring. He slowly made his way back up the narrow shaft. Going up to the next level was a matter of muscle and patience. Lift a foot, brace it, lift the other without slipping or losing balance he stopped for a moment exhausted bracing himself as comfortably as he could in the dark chimney shaft he placed the earplug against his ear turning the barrel of the sound detector upward in the passage toward first one and then another branch of the chimney's interior complex he stayed some moments listening the aluminum cones picking up the sounds of persistent voices from above him far to his left. The sounds were faint, but unlike any other throughout the entire complex at this early hour. He inched toward that sound using his elbows, his knees, and his feet to worm himself forward. The sounds in the earplug increased until he was able to distinguish words and different male voices speaking. He hesitated, thinking he could only stay where he was in safety and listen. But suddenly this was not good enough. He wanted to see these men. These men engaged in an obviously high-level command meeting. Above him, in the branch passage he had followed, was a patch of light, another unsealed fireplace. He squirmed forward, his body aching with the pressures of the narrow confines, the inability to turn his head or tilt it more than a few inches. The voices were loud now, and he removed the earplug, carefully placing the sound detector behind him, for fear the sound of metal against brick might betray his presence only a few feet away from this men, and what might be, except for the chimney shaft, a soundproofed room. When he had crawled to the grating, he saw that he was not going to be able to see the men in the room, because a heavy mesh grating had been placed in front of the fireplace. He lay still, listening. He could hear what was going on in the room outside, the clash of voices. A glass sat down on a tray, a fist slapping a palm, but he could only see dim shadows through the metallic grate. One man was doing most of the talking. Solo pressed forward, listening intently. The voice was familiar to him. He racked his brain trying to pin down that identity but it eluded him. Sam Su Yan's voice was easily identifiable. I don't agree that the plans to bomb Washington should be changed at this hour. But you're going to have to do it my way. The decision is mine. I take every responsibility. I am not interested in responsibility. All that interests me is success. I cannot conceive a greater success than dropping an atomic device on Washington, D.C., and having the United States blame Russia for it. All diplomatic relations will be broken, and at least limited atomic war will break out, and both Russia and the U.S. will be seriously weakened. That will leave the balance of world power solely in the hands of Thrush. This was our plan from the first. We have built toward that moment, and you haven't yet given us a practical reason for altering our plans at this hour. I have one unalterable reason, and I've given it to you. Uncle is not only suspicious, they are proof that a U.S. city is to be bombed so that the Russians will be blamed. So, the agency is suspicious. What has this to do with our plans? You don't suggest delay, only a choice of target. Yes, I do. Waverly will alert Washington unless he hears from both the agents assigned to this case. And you have already stated that you have those men detained until the delivery of our device. That's right. Then we can't deliver it to Washington. The area is too sensitive. and As I say, Waverly will alert the command there he may have already done so. Then what do you suggest? Su Yan demanded. No suggestion of compromise hinted in his tone. The city that we strike is not important. Certainly, Washington, D.C. would be a coup. Nothing would be better. But any important city will do. San Francisco, for example. And think how easy this could be to accomplish from here. What perfect placement for settling the blame squarely upon the Russians. The U.S. government would see the strike as having somehow been accomplished over the Bering Strait. No Russian denial would be tolerated. Besides, I have another objection to following through with the strike on Washington. We have aimed toward that for two years. Two years involving a great deal of planning, strategy, and meetings, and all the work of collecting and smuggling the components of our device. How many people are we entangled in all this? Who can we trust? Am I to trust you, even though I've known you since childhood? Do you think I am deceived that you trust me? Don't you know I'm aware that I am shadowed by operatives reporting to you? Don't you know that, Suyan? We've used the minds and skills of many engineers and scientists in assembling our device, preparing it for today's attack. All the more reason why we should choose a different city. Chicago. New York. Why not Omaha? That's where the Strategic Air Command Headquarters is. Su Yan's voice lowered. Agreed. I still believe you are fretting yourself unnecessarily. You are forgetting our original premise. Civilian defense warning systems have been blown in so many United States cities on the same day, at the same hour, for so many years, that the people no longer react to them. Or even consciously hear them anymore. As long as our strike is made during the civilian defense warning time, in whatever city, it cannot fail. The man, obviously Su Yan's superior in this setup and more than faintly contemptuous of the Chinese American, laughed. I know that. Even if those warning sirens were for real at that regular practice hour, no one would pay any attention until it's too late the louder they wailed the less heard by those sheep and goats those stupid creatures of habit would go about their normal lives maybe complaining a little about the noise then the city can be washington su yan said growing excitement and contemplating the triumph the same deceptive simplicity that had worked in the exploding lay used to kill one person the same simplicity would be used to kill millions on a gigantic scale, and using an atomic device. Solo sweat, knowing that the scheme was so simple that it was foolproof. There was only one hope to counteract the awesome perfection of the simple scheme to use U.S. habit and its own defense warning system against itself. That hope was to alert the command in time. He tilted his head, thinking he could follow the chimney shaft to a ground-level opening somewhere, and somehow fight his way to freedom. It was all he could do. There was no time to waste. The voice of the leader in the room outside stopped him. I think you could ensure the success of this operation, Su Yan, simply by forcing the two agents to make calls to Waverly, assuring him there is no immediate danger, and that they have joined forces and are working together. Excellent, Su Yan said. The one agent... The will require an injection to restore him to normalcy, but the other man can be handled easily. In fact, we are at this moment working on him. Solo almost laughed and then did not. There was a chill in Su Yan's tone, and he seemed to speak louder, as if he hoped to be overheard. It never occurred to Solo that we had his room and suite on closed-circuit television. Seems to me he would have realized that in a place like this, all rooms are kept under surveillance. Solo began to inch away from the grate, stunned by the impact of Su Yan's boast. It had occurred to him that rooms of the inmates might be scanned through the Big Brother device of closed-circuit television, but the very fact that the barred suite was far underground and apparently never been used as a patient's room had faked him out. As he tried to move away, he remembered the almost incredibly easy way he had been permitted to escape to the field, like a mouse being tormented. What pleasure it must have given the watchers to see him build this sound detector, to sort the parts dismantled by them. They were laughing, but suddenly Sulla was not. His arms refused to function. His legs no longer responded. He tried to move and could not, He breathed deeply, conscious of the sweet scent of a gas, undoubtedly a nerve gas. He lay there, conscious, but paralyzed. Part Four Incident The Morning After Doomsday One It was still early morning in the incredible ranges of the mountains where Broadmoor Rest crouched like an eerie of evil, high upon its own promontory. The hum of the fan-jet was picked up first. The battery of field-lights flared to life, washing out the last gray wisps of night within the confines of the fieldstone walls. The plane glided in with a grace and ease that communicated its perfection to the guards, and the workers permitted in the area at this hour and on this unusual day. A work of art always is a labor of love, and the most hardened armed man on the field could not deny the slight prickling of excitement he felt in seeing the way that plane was touched down without a bump, jerk, or indecision. The huge silver plane taxied up to the driveway near the main building of the sanitarium, turned smoothly, and headed into the wind. The engines died. The hatch was swung open. A ladder mechanically unfolded itself, and three men padded down the steps to the guards waiting to receive them on the runway. The navigator was first, a slender man in his twenties, an Air Force navigation veteran. The co-pilot was French, a man who had more trouble with English syntax than with any plane that would lift its nose off the ground for him. The pilot was the last man off the plane, and once he stepped onto the light, No one looked at anyone except him. He paused in the top step a moment, glancing around, not as if he owned this plane, which he did not, or the sanitarium, but the world itself. The man was well over six feet tall. He wore a flying jacket, freshly pressed slacks, and highly polished black shoes. His shirt was blue-tinted imported linen. He was no longer young. He was somewhere in his forties, probably nine years older than he admitted even to himself. He had a record of flying on both sides in several wars on the African continent, of delivering arms to opposing camps on the same day, sometimes even the same flight. If one had money, one could buy him, until someone came along with more money. Let's get this show on the road, he said to the head security officer. Where are the big wheels? He grinned. "'The men with my orders and my money.' The security officer smiled with him, because his smiling was infectious. It even made one overlook the padded bags under his dark intense tense eyes, the only sign that he had been drinking heedlessly until an hour before flight time that morning. His breath was still liquor tart, but he was completely cold and in command of himself. "'I was told to inform you, Mr. Baker.' "'There might be a slight delay,' the security officer said. "'Baker stopped smiling. "'The hell with that, Charlie. "'Take me to your leader. "'There's no delay on this boat. "'We get off on the minute or we don't go.' "'I'm just telling you what I was ordered to tell you. "'And I'm countermanding your orders, Ace,' Baker said. "'Let's go give the words to the wheels.' "'They may not like being interrupted.' Baker lost his temper instantly. His voice rasped, and the security guard, larger and heavier, paled slightly and retreated. He didn't like looking at what he saw in those dark eyes, so full of laughter an instant before. "'The hell to what you like, Ace,' Baker said. "'They can't delay this. It's on. It's on schedule. Or it's off. It takes a fan jet a certain number of hours to go X number of miles. They know that as well as I do.' THE TIMING HAS TO BE PERFECT. COME ON, TAKE ME TO THEM, AND I'LL LAY THE WORD ON THEM. TWO SOLO'S MIND REMAINED ENTIRELY CLEAR, BUT HIS BODY WAS NUMBED AND INCAPABLE OF MOVEMENT. HE LAY THERE EXPLORING THE SIMPLICITY OF THIS PLAN. DEATH FROM THE MOST UNEXPECTED SOURCE, FROM LOVELY GINGER FLOWERS FORMED INTO A BRILLIANT, scented LAY and from the clear noon sky during a civilian defense test alert. The more one heard the scream of those accustomed sirens, the less one was impressed. Hadn't they wailed last week at the same time, and every week that way for the last ten years? In his fevered mind Solo saw that atomic device, painstakingly assembled by the finest minds that thrushes money and threats and blackmail could buy waiting down there to be hoisted on that open lift to the plane at ground level. He twisted frantically, but all the writhing was inside his skin, in his mind. All this whirled through Solo's thoughts as he heard Su Yan order the grating removed from the fireplace of the command room. When the grating was taken off, Solo stared for a moment at the faces of the guards bending down to drag him out. Then, beyond them, he saw the cabinets along the walls, the filing cases, realizing that this room was the heart of thrush operations at this base. One never knows what sort of animal one will find in one's walls, hmm? Su Yan said. His voice mocked at Solo. Pull it out, and we will exterminate it. The guards caught Solo by the shirt collar and by the hair pulling him into the room. They dropped him less than carefully upon the tiled flooring. Solo lay sprawled where he struck, helpless even to straighten his twisted arms. For all intents and purposes his body was dead, only his mind persisted alive. He heard Su Yan chuckle. Dirty beast, isn't he? Covered with soot and grime. I'm afraid he's not exactly the sort of Santa Claus from a chimney I've always imagined. From where he had been dropped, Solo could see only a small portion of the room. His mind was tormented with the seeds of madness. He knew of the awesome plan to destroy civilization, and he could not even move a muscle of his hands or feet. And time ticked away. Time stood still then for a moment when there was a sharp rapping at the door. Su Yan strode across the room and opened it. Solo heard anger and outrage in his voice as he demanded, "'What are you doing here?' a hesitant voice said. "'It's Colonel Baker, sir. He says he either talks to you people or he flies out of here. I thought you'd want to know.' "'What's the hush-hush?' Baker strode into the room, pushing the door out of Su Yan's grasp. "'You people don't intimidate me.' Put a bullet in me, pay me off, or keep the schedule. It's all the same to me. What's eating you, Baker? The head of operations now spoke, and Solo fought to lift his head enough to see him. Baker laughed. I'll tell you what's eating me, Big Wheel. You people hired me on a trick that sounded good because it offered a challenge, you know? Pinpointed, precisely timed. Well, I'm here, and there's talk of delay. My plane can travel only so fast. There's so much distance to cover, and precise timing. It won't wait. Either follow through with the plans, and that means keeping to an exact schedule, or pay me off. Real simple. No sweat. Nothing to get excited about. Three. The excitement was quickly quelled. The room cleared for the moment. "'except for Su Yan and the man Uncle had known for so long as Tixie Ilno. "'There was no doubt now this was the biggest wheel of all in Operation Doomsday. "'The pilot is absolutely right, Su Yan,' Tixie Ilno was saying. "'The difference of a few minutes would spoil the arrival of the device "'as the test sirens started in our target area. "'One cannot help admiring Colonel Baker.' He has stayed alive in this moment by being sure of everything he does connected with flying. Su Yan, however, was not impressed. He's not the kind of man I'd care to have in the sort of world I envision after today. Tixie Ilmo laughed. It's highly unlikely that Colonel Baker will survive the Holocaust, old friend. Those of us here underground may be the only ones to see the end of this conflict. Tixie Ilno paced across the room, staring down at Solo, sprawled like a rag doll on the chilled flooring. Solo's eyes widened. He felt nausea and sickness spread across his numbed body. He no longer needed the code name for Tixie Ilno. The man standing over him was Osgood DeVry, the president's advisor and confidant. DeVry stared down at him a moment, face without expression. Then he spoke across his shoulder. Get Kiriakhin and the girl in here. There's no more time for delay. I'll bring them myself, Suyan said from across the room. We'll want Dr. Kalyot to give him an injection before we get him in here. De Vrij waved his hand impatiently. The corridor door whispered open, side closed, and Solo was alone with De Vrij. Dari's face twisted into a contemptuous smile, staring down at Solo. "'You can stop looking at me with such astonishment and revulsion, Solo. It won't help you to know my true identity. Believe me, you'd never have been permitted to see me or even hear my voice, except that you're slated for immediate oblivion.' He prowled away, then returned. He said, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed all these months reading the classified and confidential reports your agency has been making on me under my code name of Tixie Ilno. The very name itself amused me every time I saw it, because I do plan exit only for the two great powers of this earth. DeVry glanced at his watch, shooting his cuff and then shaking it down over his wrist. The President trusted you almost more than any other man on earth. Solo said, somewhat astonished that he could speak coherently, though his body remained in a state of paralysis. I'm not interested in the sentimentality or the mistakes other men make simply because they see in you some quality they think they possess themselves. You're one of the most influential men in this country. What is it going to buy you to destroy it all? DeVry smiled at him coldly. It's going to buy me what I need. Do you want a world destroyed by an atomic war? At the moment, yeah, yeah, I do. For many reasons. Most of them you wouldn't even understand. You say I'm influential? Huh, as a presidential flunky, right? I shall be a great deal more influential in the world that remains. I shall dictate all the terms. You may be just talking to yourself. DeVry appeared unmoved by this possibility. If I am, I shall tell myself that I have what a man of pride has to have vindication, revenge for the wrongs compounded upon me, and which I've had to take until I simply couldn't take them any more. Solo stared at the man, wondering what had happened to him to cause his mind to break like this. Because he saw that Devry was insane, no longer able to conceive the horror of a world blasted by atomic radiation. What had happened to this man so long trusted and respected by his close friend, the President? DeVry answered this for him. I tried to warn him, the President. I tried to warn him. He just laughed. He slapped me on the back and wouldn't listen. Well, he'll listen now. I told them I wanted a position worthy of my talents, the sort of post I had earned after all these years in the military and political life. They picked my brains. Then they put me in a position where I'd be respected for the decisions I either make or influence. Years ago, I promised the job that I would have taken would have executed better than it had ever been handled. And I would have been contented with. They promised me I would head Central Intelligence. I even spoke about it with my close friends and relatives. I was filled with pride, with satisfaction. It was all I ever wanted. Debray strode out of the perimeter of Solo's vision, and then after a moment walked restlessly back. I was rated a security risk. Do you hear? A security risk. The very fact that I was a security risk triggered a witch hunt in Washington that dug down to the levels of generals and colonels and majors, to all the branches of the military. Me. Every day, half my life, devoted, sacrificed, Spent in behalf of the President and through him this stupid, shameless, ungrateful country. Make a profit, make a profit, use all influential power, and discard those who don't have it. Sure, the President kept me on. Politics demanded it, security demanded it, and I was his friend. But I was now classified as a security risk, and doors that had always been open to me were suddenly closed. Now, after twenty-five years of sacrifice, I was nothing more than a flunky fetching coffee and bringing in non-classified notes. I was a risk. I could not have the job I wanted more than anything else on earth—the job that the president himself had promised me. I had made one mistake, one bad judgment years before, and it doomed me. No matter how loyal I'd been in all those years, no matter how hard I worked. I was a security risk. Well, I'm also a man of pride, and I cannot live with that wrong. It will be avenged. Thank God you didn't get the post as head of the CIA, Solo said fervently. DeVry strode toward him. Solo saw the rage swirl in his eyes, saw the terrible self-control the man exercised to keep from kicking him in the face. The foot lifted, trembled, and his mouth worked. After a moment, DeVry spoke calmly. Well, it doesn't matter. The CIA won't mean much after today, Mr. Solo. It'll be gone, along with everything else. Four Solo watched DeVry turn as a door whispered open across the room. Barbary entered first. Solo could see her face. She looked ill with fright. Her cheeks were pallid, her eyes wild, like some frantic animals. Elia stepped in next. His gaze flew about the room, sizing it up, and then he saw Solo. He forgot Su Yan, Devry the guards. He crossed the room swiftly, kneeling beside Solo. You're alive, Solo's voice conveyed his relief. More or less, Solo said. A temporary condition for all three of you, Suyan said. A guard caught Elia by the collar and jerked him around. Elia came upward on his toes and kept turning, bringing his extended hand upward into the guard's stomach. The man gave a little sob of agony and bent double, dropping the gun. Elia lunged for it. And Suyan permitted him to get his hands on it before he chopped him across the neck. Ilya plunged straight down, landing hard on his face, arms thrust out before him. Heroics, Suyan said in contempt, a kind of ildis with these people. If you've killed him before he makes that call to his superior, Ozga de Bryce said, you may live to regret your own heroics. Su Yan frowned slightly, then shook his head. No, I'll call Dr. Kalyot in and have him happy to talk in minutes. But as Su Yan turned toward the telephone on the conference table, lights flashed and then dimmed. Su Yan and DeVry straightened and glanced at each other. The device is being removed to the lift, Su Yan said. We have flight time to make the call. The two guards left the room ahead of DeVry, The man whom Ilya had attacked still walked slightly doubled over, but carried his weapon again. Su Yan lifted Ilya, placed him in a chair, secured his hands behind him, and left him there, unconscious. I'm afraid we have some bad news for you, Mr. Solo, Su Yan said. We have reached the decision that you are expendable ahead of the operation. We need only the voice of one of you. We have determined Kuryakin, despite his tendency to act recklessly, will be the easiest to control. I hope you will believe me when I tell you how sorry I am I won't be seeing you again. Solo did not speak, just watched him. Su Yan caught Marbury by the arm, leading her toward one of the cylinders lined on the far wall. Watching them, Solo saw how the nerve gas had been pumped to him through the small rubber tubing that ran along the houseboard to the fireplace. A nerve gas here that should interest you, Mr. Solo, Suyan said. He paused when the lights dimmed again. Developed by our own scientists and chemists. The effect is much like that of hypnosis. The subject remains in a waking sleep state, as in hypnosis. As in hypnosis, she is not aware of what she is doing while she is under its effects. And unlike hypnosis, the so-called moral censor is not at work. The subject follows only those orders given her while she is going under, and there is no danger of morals or conscience as a deterrent. She is literally unable to do anything except follow those orders. I'm sure this is going to prove most interesting to you. The lights dimmed again, and Su Yan hurried himself slightly. When Barbary opposed him, tried to break free, he drew his arm back and almost struck her. At the last moment he controlled his rage. Instead of hitting her, he simply stared down at her and spoke no more than three or four whispered words. Barbary no longer offered any resistance. He sat her down in a chair beside one of the cylinders, He placed a rubber cup firmly over her mouth and nose, holding it in place. He turned the valve on the cylinder. There was a whisper of sound, the sibilant hiss of gas. Solo strained to move his body, but found himself still in the state of physical paralysis. He saw that Suyan was not using the same gas on Barbary. His low voice struck at Barbary. I am going to leave a knife with you, Barbary. Do you understand? Solo saw the girl's eyes open wide. There was no longer any terror in them. Her blinking seemed to indicate to Su Yan that she still heard him, still understood him. He glanced at the needle on the cylinder gauge. Satisfied that the flow of gas was slow, steady, and adequate, Su Yan spoke again. "'When I am out of the room, Barbary, you will kill Napoleon Solo there on the floor. You will strike between the shoulder blades. Once—' twice three times you will make certain he is dead before you use the knife on yourself you will drive the knife upward through your solar plexus into your heart solo in horror heard Su Yan calmly repeat these instructions in that same unemotional tone he could see barbary's face and he saw there was no recoiling no revulsion in her eyes He could not tell if she understood Su Yan, but the thin, tall man appeared satisfied. He reached over and turned off the valve. The whispering hiss of gas ceased. He stood another moment with the rubber cup in place over Barbary's nose and mouth. Then he set the cup in its holder. He drew a glittering, sharp knife from his inner jacket pocket. He placed it firmly in Barbary's grasp, folding her fingers over the handle, pressing them closed watching her narrowly as he worked. Su Yan stepped back, and Barbary sat there, staring straight ahead, knife clasped firmly in her fist. Su Yan watched her a moment, then nodded, apparently satisfied. The building lights dimmed again. He turned, moving toward the door, paused, glancing at Solo on the floor. "'Goodbye, Mr. Solo,' Suyan stared at him. "'If it will comfort you,' I can assure you that you and Esther kapmeier will be found dead in your room at the St. Francis Hotel. Somehow there's no comforting thought there, Solo said. When it happens, Su Yan said, Washington, D.C. will be nothing but atomic rubble, and World War III will be underway. Too bad you don't have enough reason left to see what will happen when hydrogen bombs are used. Su Yan had turned toward the door. Now he heeled around angrily. We can build well on the ruins of this world, and small loss. Other civilizations have grown out of the rubble of those before them. Sure, if you say so. Don't fight it so, Su Yan said with a chilled smile. You have the comforting thought that you gave your life in a heroic effort to avert what you saw as a catastrophe. Now Solo laughed. I wonder what comforting thought you'll find in that, Su Yan, when you finally realize that the catastrophe is more immense than your imagination can contain, when there is nothing left for you to rule. I've always wondered what thoughts are comforting to an international fink. Su Yan gripped the door until his knuckles whitened. He obviously fought a battle against his fiery desire to stride back across the room and finish off Solo. Whatever he might have done, the thought was wiped away as the lights dimmed once more. He glanced as if for the final check at Solo's helplessness on the floor, at Elia bound and unconscious in a straight chair, and Barbary seated with that gleaming six-inch knife gripped tightly in her fist. This still life pleased him entirely and he gave a small nod of satisfaction before he stepped through the door and closed it behind him. The thundering of noises rumbled through the air ducts onto the ceiling of the room. Forcing himself to keep his gaze away from Barbary and the knife in her hand, Solo concentrated on the cabinets along the far wall, seeing weaponry, masks, and ammunition, as well as cylinders of several types of gases, Every attack weapon he would need to stop DeVry and Su Yan, only a few feet away from him. And yet, they might as well have been in the dark side of the moon. Barbary stirred and Solo jerked his eyes back to her. The chair scraped as she stood up. He said, Don't move, Barbary. Stay where you are. She stood up slowly, her gaze fixed on his vulnerable back. She stared at him but he knew that she had not heard a word he had said. She was conditioned against any thought except that of murder and suicide and planted in her mind by Samuel Su Yan. 5. Followed by two guards, Su Yan strode along the corridor to the elevator marked private. He stepped into it with the guards slipped quickly into the white-walled laboratory where the atomic device had been assembled and was now being loaded for the upward ride to the field where it would be placed in the bomb bay of the sleek silver fan jet. As Su Yan left the elevator, he saw only one man in the metallically lit area who seemed relaxed. This was Colonel Baker, the renegade pilot who had hired out to make the delivery as specified of one atomic device. Su Yan stared at the man. He lounged, drinking a beer while his payload was being painstakingly carted by a narrow rail over the 70 or 80 feet of floor space to the specially rigged open elevator. Su Yan wondered if the arrogant adventurer had looked beyond that moment when he would dump his atomic payload as contracted. Su Yan's mouth twisted. There was no doubt in his mind that Colonel Baker would make the delivery. It was more than the flat fee of one million dollars that was to be paid before the plane took off this morning. It was the challenge that would carry Baker through the strike. The tougher the going got for him at zero hour, the greater would be the flyer's determination and pleasure in making the strike. Su Yan wondered what sort of irresponsible man the colonel had to be to miss the most important aspect of the whole matter. He was going to have a million dollars, but where was he going to spend it perhaps he had thought of that and maybe the promise of one more war fought in the air had outweighed all the considerations for him no one would ever know what he was thinking as he stood richly tailored immaculate and still slightly hung over, awaiting the fateful loading of his biggest payload su yan walked to the place where osgood devry stood with several other men scientists, engineers, technicians, guards, all inspecting the manually operated series of winches, cables, and chains that would operate the open lift. Su Yan told himself that DeVry was going to find fault, and he was not disappointed. What's wrong with electric power to operate the lift? He asked. They run all the other elevators. Su Yan pointed with infinite oriental patience at the small ratchet turning with each click of the smallest wheel in the series. The lift can be operated from here with the touch of a finger. Another flick of the smallest finger drops that ratchet into the cogwheels, instantly stopping the lift. We can know what's happening down here, but not above. We had to prepare for every contingency, including attack, power failure, accident... The engineers must have warned you that this atomic device is jerry-built, to say the least. We have tried to measure to the least decibel the amount of sound or movement that might activate it, but it is only an educated guess. We are handling it with every care until we get it loaded onto your pilot's plane. After that, delivery is his problem. Colonel Baker laughed. Load it up, Ace. I have delivered eggs through hurricanes without breaking a one of them. Six. Solo's frantic mind ordered every muscle in his body to move. Any movement at all. Watching Barbary rise from the chair with the knife gleaming in her taut fist, he felt his senses boil as adrenaline coursed into his bloodstream. His order was not a complete failure, but the response he did elicit was worse than failing, more demoralizing. Wasn't there faint movement, almost a return of life to his toes? He stared at his fingers, seeing them flex, but nothing more than a tremor. It was slow, too slow, like the movement of that part of an iceberg below the surface of some frozen sea. Operation Doomsday continued unchecked. The noises from below came like taunting sounds from the channels of the air ducts, the pulses of the engines, the distant turn of metal wheels on iron tracks, the whirring rasps of winches and cables. Across the room, Elia stirred, straightening his head from his shoulders. He came awake painfully, slowly. At first, when Solo cried out his name, Elia didn't respond still too drugged with pain and dulled with his forced sleep. "'Elia! Elia, listen to me!' Across the room Elia sat straighter, a flicker of light showing in his eyes. Solo called out again, urgently. "'Elia! Wake up, Elia!' Elia stirred. His head came up, his eyes focused. He saw Barbary, the gleaming knife, the direction of her intent gaze and read, in that instant, the grave danger to Solo. He tried to come off the chair, but the bond stopped him, yanking him back down. The chair scraped on the tile flooring, but not even this sudden sound penetrated Barbary's consciousness. She didn't even hear it. "'Barbary!' Elia called. "'Barbary, over here!' It was no good. She did not hear his voice any more than she heard the abrupt scraping of his chair." As far as Barbary knew in that moment, only she, Solo, the knife, and her orders to kill existed. Barbary walked towards Solo, slowly, with the careful, wooden manner of a sleepwalker. She raised the knife to shoulder level, and she kept it there as she walked. She was looking fixedly at Solo. Solo told himself there was infinite sadness in those deep violet eyes, but common sense warned him this was an illusion. Her gaze was intent upon him, but there was no emotion in it. The intense concentration was upon that vulnerable place where she'd strike with that knife between his shoulder blades. She can't kill like this, even under hypnosis, Elia said, working at his bonds. She's not in hypnosis, Solo said, wriggling his fingers, squirming his toes within his shoes, sweating because the return of his senses was slow. Too slow. It's nerve gas. She's like a robot, programmed to kill. That's all she knows right now. They haven't missed a trick, have they? Elia said, struggling. Solo stared at Elia on the chair. Like the weaponry in the cabinets, Elia was so near, yet impossibly far away. He saw Elia interpret the question in his eyes Could he break out of those fetters in time? Elia made no effort to deceive him. He shook his head. Though his wrists bled, he could not work his hands free, not in time. Time. Solo saw the fateful step made by the feet shod in patent leather pumps. High heels, trim ankles. He did not look any higher. He was staring at Elia, at the cabinets of weaponry. Elia was not going to work free in time to stop Barbary, but perhaps this wasn't as important as what he might accomplish when he was free. Ilya at last had a chance to alert Uncle in time to avert an international catastrophe. Even if he, Solo, died here, Ilya could still make it. Solo pitched his voice at an unemotional level, staring at Elia. No matter what happens to me and to Barbary, don't let it slow you down. Right now, below us, they're loading an atomic device that will be dropped on Washington, D.C. The destruction there will be tremendous, but that will only be the beginning. It's going to start an atomic war. There are some things that you have to do, Elia, in order to accomplish them. Find the camera eye of the closed circuit television in the room, smash it. Then arm yourself from that row of cabinets. Somehow you've got to get out of here, and somehow you've got to get word to Waverly. Time has run out, Elia. They're loading the device right now. I'll do it, Elia said. His voice shook with the savagery of his working to free himself. Solo felt the toe of a sleek slipper strike his face. He stared at the shoe and the inconsistency that occurs in moments of extreme danger. He realized he could see his reflection on the slick surfaces of those slippers. His helpless body mirrored there. Then it occurred to him that he could watch himself being killed. He felt his pulse quicken, the increased beat of his heart. The adrenaline fed uselessly into his system. All his senses were keenly alert to this final danger, but he was unable to move. She stood above him for a moment, not moving because she had walked as far as she could. The lights in the room dimmed and flickered. A new sound raged up through the air ducts. Solo recognized it because he had been listening for it. The large elevator, specially constructed for this one mission. It was slowly grinding into motion, lifting the atomic device to ground level. Solo shivered, not with fear, but rage at his helplessness. That plane would soon be airborne, loaded with its deadly cargo. It didn't seem to matter much now that a girl named Barbary Coast was bending over him, ready to drive a knife into his back. What mattered was that the entire world was in danger, and he could do nothing to stop it. There was a new terrible agony in it, too. Life now quivered tentatively more than halfway down his fingers. He could wriggle his feet, but he could not lift them. He could flex his fingers, but he could not move his hands. Using all his willpower, he managed to turn his neck, his head twisting so that he faced Barbary. There was nothing to see in her face, though, except pallid emptiness. Barbary! she did not respond. He saw that her eyes did not even blink. Nothing could reach her. He sweated, seeing the knife lifted above her shoulder, her gaze fixed on his back between his shoulder blades, precisely as Su Yan had commanded her. Below them, the rumble of the slowly rising lift. Nearer, the easy breathing, as Barbary lifted the knife, totally relaxed ready to plunge it in three times as Su Yan had told her, dispassionate, her subconscious entirely divorced from this robot action of her body. The lifting elevator grumbled. The building quivered. The knife glittered, stopping at the crest of the arc. The blade zeroed in on Solo's heart, quivered in her hand, ready to flash downward. Solo tensed, "'desperately ordering his arm to fling upward, "'but knowing in advance that it wasn't going to happen. Seven. "'Solo heard the rustle of movement, the sudden shout of warning. "'For a split second he lay still. "'Then his legs moved and he twisted to one side. "'He swung his arm upward, "'and the tingling sensation of returning life flashed through him. He saw the knife striking downward but contact was never made elia lunged through the air in an impossibly long tackle he did it expertly too solo saw because to hit barbary and drive her down upon him would send the knife into him with an impact barbary could never have managed alone but elia struck low driving upward from the balls of his feet his driving tackle carried barbary forward and up sending her sailing across solo's body to the tiled floor beyond him. It was a near thing, but it was a complete miss. She struck face down, sliding some feet, losing the knife so that it clattered almost to the wall. Elia landed on top of Solo, rolling across him. Solo saw that his wrists and shirt were streaked with blood, but his hands and arms were free. Solo spoke at once, putting the danger from Barbary and her knife from his mind, computing ahead forcing himself to remain cool. He could move his head now, and his gaze located the lens of the closed-circuit camera on the far wall. Before Elia could pull himself around, Sola was speaking to him in a low tone. The camera eye is directly across there, high in the wall. If you smash it, the control room will know instantly. Elia was on his feet. His gaze found the camera eye. He crossed the room, shoving a chair to the wall. Standing on the chair, he placed his hand over the lens and then calmly unscrewed it from the camera. Turning it around, he jammed it hard back into the aperture. He leaped off the chair. She crossed to the wall and retrieved the knife. A lady with a very one-track mind, Elia said. He strode across the room. She stared vacantly at him. He tried to take the knife, but she resisted. He caught her wrist and twisted, removing the knife from her grasp. Her face showed no pain. She's disarmed, Elia said across his shoulder, but I'm afraid she still has murder on her mind. Solo was sitting up now. He was not sure that he could stand or that his legs would support him if he made it, but tension and rage had sent blood pulsing through his body, nullifying the effects of the paralyzing gas. He pulled himself up by clinging to a table, exploring the slow, confused return of his sensations. His skin tingled as a hand or finger might, held too long in one position, or if circulation were cut off. He shook shakily like a newborn colt, clinging to the highly polished, blonde table. He heard the continued whine of the elevator, the rumbling through the earth and the foundations of the building. He straightened up as the whistling of the warning sirens flared, and then continued through the building. He knew the wrecked, closed-circuit TV camera had created this warning. Undoubtedly, word was already being called to Su Suyan below them. "'Ilya!' Solo said, keeping the warning sounds out of his thought processes. Help me. Ilya ran to him. Solo jerked his head toward the gas cylinders. Solo was able to move only with a slow, shuffling walk that enraged him. He forced himself to speak calmly, but inside he was shaking desperately with a fear of failure, even when he'd been given this last chance. Three gas masks from the cabinet, Ilya. A machine pistol from there. Watch that door. If it opens, start firing, and keep firing until it closes, no matter who it is. Ilya nodded. Solo pulled free and half fell against the wall where the rubber tubing, which had carried the nerve gas to him, still lay. He picked up the tubing, disconnected it from the cylinder of nerve gas, and reconnected it to one of a simple anesthetic gas. Then he ran the tubing up the wall to the air conditioning duct. Ilya broke open the cabinets. He tossed a gas mask to Solo. "'Pulled one over his own head. "'With a machine pistol under his arm, "'he crossed the room to where Barbary stood "'as though dazed or walking in her sleep. "'Solo waited only until the mask "'was being pulled down over Barbary's head. "'He twisted the valve of the anesthetic cylinder to full. "'He stared at the gauge, "'seeing the needle flash across it "'and danger lights flare red. "'The lights he ignored "'just as he ignored the increased "'whoop-whoop sound of the warning whistles.' The faint whispering of an opening door struck him, and he turned to the moment Elia, on his knees, pressed the trigger of the machine pistol. Two guards were already running into the room. The machine pistol bucked and they crumpled forward, still moving after they were already dead. Shuffling, pulling himself along the cabinets, Solo armed himself. The door was pulled closed. Don't try to wait for me, Solo told Elia. Try to stop that elevator, even if you have to detonate their bomb. He saw Elia nod inside the gas mask. Elia gave Barbary a shove. She stumbled, moving towards Solo. He caught her, gripping her arms with his left hand. Elia stepped over the bodies of the dead guards. He emptied the machine pistol into the electrically controlled lock mechanism of the door. It swung open like the broken wing of a bird. Elia tossed the empty machine pistol behind him. Solo tossed him two new guns and Ilya went through the door into the corridor. The sound of the alarm whistle was increased tenfold with the thick door hanging open. Through the din, Solo heard the rasping fire of the machine pistol outside the door. He heard DeVry's voice blaring on the suddenly activated building intercom. Proceed! 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 Do not stop for anything! Proceed with the plan as scheduled! Do not stop! PROCEED! There was a wildness to his voice, and frustration and the brittle wail of insanity as the anesthetic gas spread through the air conditioning, and men hesitated in what they were doing, paused, stopped, and sank to the floor unconscious. of voice persisted. The intercom crackled with his commands, with his shouting, his cursing, his sobbing. Solo grabbed Barbary's arm and dragged her after him, He stared at her face through the plastic face shield of the mask. Her violet eyes remained staring and drugged. He talked to her savagely, knowing she was not hearing him, but himself gathering some strength from bullying her into following him from the room. In the corridor outside, Elia was the first person he saw. The young agent held his machine pistol at ready, but Solo saw in his face through the mask that Elia was lost. The elevators, Solo said. The one marked private. That must go down to the underground level. Come on, Elias said. We'll go together. There's time now. The gas has hit this place hard. Solo moved with him, still shuffling, still dragging Barbary after him. He saw men slumped against the walls, lying on the flooring, some of them with guns fallen from their limp hands. And he saw something else. This was Elia's show from this moment. He could shuffle along in his wake. He could fire the machine pistol. He could find their way through the maze of floors and corridors. But only Elia could move at any speed. They reached the elevators. DeVry's voice was weaker now, but his wails were higher pitched. Elia pressed the button on the elevator marked private. When it whirred to a stop, its doors parting... He saw two guards slumped on the cage flooring, guns beside them. Ilya pressed the last button on the panel. The elevator started its swift descent. DeVry's voice rose and faded on the intercom. It sank to a whisper and ceased. The elevator doors parted on the huge, white-lit lab. The manually-operated elevator was high above their level. The man operating it had donned one of the masks the scientists used inside the atomic cages. He had oxygen and protection from the anesthetic. Otherwise, the huge room was like a place of human statues, men in almost every position, caught there in that final moment when the gas had felled them. Men with guns in their arms, men fallen to their knees or braced against walls. Colonel Baker, the renegade pilot, "'still clung to his can of beer, even in unconsciousness. Su Yan had been struck to his knees. Across the room at the intercom microphone. "'Devry still clutched the instrument on his knees before the lit panel. "'The elevator operator jerked his head up "'and saw Elia run out of the elevator ahead of Solo and Barbary. "'The operator instinctively slapped at the braking ratchet "'on the smallest series of wheels.' As his fingers struck the small metal piece, Elias shot him. He toppled away from the controls. The tiny ratchet fell forward, slipping between the cogs of the oiled wheels. But total contact had not been made. The small wheel slipped past the ratchet. It struck the next cog, slowing it. But the second, larger wheel then slipped backwards, not braked, and so on and so on in a series until the cables lifting the hoist slipped and the elevator shuddered, slipping downward each time the ratchet missed its cog. Elias stared at the small wheels a moment, then at the trembling cables under the flooring to the lift. "'Let's get out of here. That hoist will fall faster and faster. By the time it strikes the sump!' He did not even bother to finish the thought, herding Solo and Barbary ahead of him into the elevator. He stopped at the doors, holding them open. He lifted his machine pistol, aiming at Su Yan, meaning to kill him and DeVry before he cleared out. Forget it. When that lift falls out of control, their bomb is going to go off. Let them go with it. The sigh came out of him and Elia nodded. He stared one final time at Su Yan and DeVry, at the little ratchet slipping as it tried to break that tiny wheel. He let the gun sink to his side. The elevator doors whispered shut. The warning whistle continued to wail in the eerie world of immobility. The elevator screamed upward, stopping at ground level. Nobody outside the building is going to be affected by that gas, Solo warned. Be ready to fight your way out. I don't need any coaxing. The way that ratchet is sleeping is all the impetus I need for clearing out of here fast, no matter who's in my way. Solo led them along the corridor to the maintenance exit, out of which he had been permitted to run in his earlier escape attempt. Su Yan had enjoyed that cat-and-mouse game, letting him get almost within reach of escape, but that dry run had shown him where the Institute cars were parked. He shoved open the door, hearing the savage yelling of the dogs from the kennel. He and Barbary stepped out into the bright morning sunlight, followed by Elia with his gun held at ready. The first car Solo saw on the ramp was a Rolls-Royce, black, gleaming, headed out on the drive. It was undoubtedly Osgood DeVry's car, waiting for an instant getaway in case of any disruption in the plans of the doomsday bomb. Beyond the garage and the cars on the ramp, the silver fan jet rested in the sun, surrounded by armed men and technicians. The alarm whistle shattered the morning silence. The Rolls. "'Solo said. "'If any car has a chance to clear this place, "'it'll be DeVry's.' "'They ran for it. "'Inside the garage, men shouted. "'Ilya grabbed the door of the rolls and threw it open. "'In the same motion, he knelt, "'the machine pistol bucking and rattling "'as he spray-fired into the garage. "'Men turned, running from the plane. "'Ilya sprang into the rolls under the wheel, "'turning the key as he moved. "'Solo thrust Barbary between them.' and Elia had the car rolling as he struck the seat and slammed the door. The men on the grass sank to their knees, firing at the racing car. Elia braced the machine pistol on the window, firing only for effect. His entire attention was on the drive, the iron gate, and the fieldstone walls. The gate attendant ran out as the car approached. Behind them, Solo saw the other cars being started, racing forward in pursuit. Ilya held the machine pistol out in plain sight, fixed on the guard. He shouted at him. The man nodded and quickly pressed a button. The huge gate swung open. Ilya stepped hard on the gas. I've always loved the way these things look, but they handle so awkwardly. Sola was watching the road behind them. Do you suppose you can move it any faster? I don't know. I've never actually driven one of these before. Ilya held the car close to the inside of the winding mountain road slowing as he went into the curves but speeding as he navigated them they were some miles down the mountain when the explosion came it shook the earth battering it from above them earth crumpled and boulders larger than houses fell free other small explosions followed behind them there was silence as the pursuing cars stopped up there that chalet up there it must have crumpled in on itself elias said shivering slightly It'll be an underground atomic explosion that they'll pick up around the world, Solo said. He drew the mask off. Maybe they'll write it off as an earthquake. The battered mountain continued to quiver and shake as it tore loose from its foundations. The violence of that atomic underground blast loosened the earth from its shackles. Huge boulders torn loose hurtled downwards like pebbles in a land-pounding avalanche. Brittle-rooted trees broke out of the rocky soil, sending up more thunder, more dust. The big car rattled to its underpinnings. It lunged out of control, and the convulsions torturing the earth danced in jerky pirouettes from one side of the narrow road to the other. Shatterproof glass splintered, webbed, and crumpled. Elia fought the wheel, pulling his foot off the accelerator. His hands gripped the wheel even harder when there was an electronically triggered click, and Su Yan's voice rose eerily from a concealed recorder. Memo the voice droned. From Samuel Su Yan to Osgood Devrai. The car slowed. Well, old friend of childhood days, whom I trusted no more than now. You will be hearing this memo for one reason only Something will have fouled our plan, and you will be running for safety, leaving me to face the debacle. This time you won't make it. As if sharing the same thought, Solo and Ilya simultaneously thrust open the doors on both sides of the rolls. The voice continued, Race down the mountain. The heat bomb will be triggered by your speed. You can't win. I have always had the last word. "'It's too late for you now. "'And my last word, my friend, is goodbye.' "'The recording was speaking to an empty car. "'Solo grabbed Barbary's head against his chest "'and hurtled them outward. "'When Elia leapt free of the car, "'it finally went out of control. "'As it struck a mountain wall and rebounded, "'the heat bomb exploded, turning the mountain white. "'The fragmented car still moved.' rolling brightly orange with flames to the brink of the cliff and over it. The End This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. We hope you've enjoyed this uvula audio presentation of The Doomsday Affair by Harry Winnington. The opening and closing themes, as you may have recognized, were from the actual 1960s TV show The Man from U.N.C.L.E., and composed by Jerry Goldsmith. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uviloabio at ubiloaudio.com. You can also become a Facebook fan of ubiloaudio. Just do a search for ubiloaudio Audio on Facebook or do it from the main ubiloaudio Audio webpage. We are listen on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcast for free from there. If you like our podcasts, please feel free to tip us whatever or not you may like using the secure PayPal link. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. From all of us at Ubula Audio, we thank you.